Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sheila Shoiga, and this is Ready to Be Real Conversations, the podcast series where I chat to people of all walks of life. Some names you'll recognise, others you might not, but my hope is that these conversations will at times inspire, challenge, educate, comfort, or simply entertain you. In my final conversation of the year, and one of the most important I've ever had, I speak to Ruth Smith. Palestinians are many people <laughs> yeah. and they're, you know, they're not one type of person. Um, Palestinians are Christian, are mm-hmm. Muslim, um, are atheist, potentially, you know, a lot of Palestinians who, who may not practice any faith, but they're Palestinian. Um, the people that I met, the word resilience is used a lot. Um, I think existing under occupation is resistance existing at all with your language with your faith with your traditions your culture your music your your dress they have this beautiful embroidery tatris um so any kind of symbol of of existence is resistance mm-hmm. you know so any indigenous people who have been occupied who've been brutalized who've been genocided their very existence in their skin color and their customs and their traits and their folk traditions is a resistance mm-hmm. so they're people living that every day. Ruth is a multidisciplinary artist, teacher and body worker who lives in Galway with her husband Fergal. And during this topical conversation, she speaks to us about her visit to the West Bank earlier this year and the impact that visit had on her. The importance of activism and visibility when it comes to the current situation in Gaza and the occupied territories and how connecting with like-minded people is so important. This is an episode for everyone and one I really hope will be shared by those who listen. We recorded it over two separate days as so much had happened since our first chat, including the US vetoing a resolution calling for a ceasefire. Here it is. We're trying to figure out when we met each other for the first time. Mm. It's definitely a few years. It is a few years. I think it's seven, seven, eight. Seven, eight, maybe, yeah. yeah. And 
for both of us, a lot of life has been lived in those few years. We've packed it in, Sheila. <laughs> yeah. And you have been on, uh, you know, as they say, it's an overused term, but it's truthful. And you have been on a real journey over the past number of years mm. in your own life, professionally and personally. Yeah, definitely. So I think for the listener, it would be, it would be worthwhile to give a sense of of where you're at now, but how you got to where you're at as well. To start with the personal, I suppose I'm I'm a County Galway woman, um, born and bred and lived away for a good bit, but I found myself back living in County Galway again and delighted to be with my husband Fergal. Um, I think to, to put a sort of a synopsis on the personal arc, I've gone from being a very public person in lots of ways in all the work I've done, grew up in a family pub, public house, you know, so learning that very early on, put on a face. Yeah. Um, and that brought me then through my love of music and the arts. I studied drama and theatre studies and music, ended up going into, you know, working in those areas, always on stage, always out front. Um, and yeah, two years ago, I think things happened that that made me have to pull in from that public kind of sphere and I kind of reclaimed my sacred private life in lots of ways mm. and that's been the hardest work that I've done in the last two years is to find out who I am without the external validation of constantly doing performative work whether that's a broadcaster yeah yeah theatre performer musician MC I know you know what that's like you you have that I wouldn't call it a conflict but there's you're definitely inhabiting two different spaces. Mm. And I feel mm. in yeah. pulling back in from that very public life, from like since I was a child, you know, being in a pub, in a public house. Um, yeah, I've kind of found out who I am away from that external validation or those external eyes. And as a result, I've gone into training as a craniosacral therapist, a biodynamic craniosacral therapist in a wonderful course here in Galway. Um, working one-to-one with people. I've trained as a menstruality facilitator, you know, just deepening into work that feels really meaningful that isn't about the end product necessarily. It's more about the process with people. So that's kind of the personal professional arc. Yeah. Yeah. And it is important to kind of find out who am I without? Because when you're in industries that, you know, the label is very important. Um, you know, you you do that dance with the ego that it can be quite dangerous. Well, it's intoxicating. Mm. And and to step down from that looks like such failure. Like it looks, you know, from the outside looking in, it wasn't by it wasn't a personal choice to step away from my I, I had my own folk music show. I was a presenter, broadcaster, curator of a show that I absolutely loved um with the national broadcaster. And yeah, it it wasn't by choice. It was a combination of of conditions and and events that that made it impossible for me to to go on to keep giving my voice and my creativity and my creative intellect to that space. So yeah, it's it's been I think it's one of the things I was thinking the last few days like why am I coming on here because you know it's my first time to do any kind of public speaking since I finished with RT and I know there's the aspect of the fact that I visited Palestine this year and that's obviously you know, a big part of people's collective conscience at the moment, um, which I'm really happy to talk about. Um, and I, I don't have 
a product to sell. I don't have a service to endorse or, you know, and I was thinking, why, why am I coming on to speak to Sheila? You know, what is it that I bring? And when I dug down into my why, the biggest reason for me being here, I think, in this life at this time is what breaks my heart about the world is abuse of power. Mm. And I think it's the cornerstone of everything that I do, whether it's trauma, you know, trauma recovery work through craniosacral therapy, um, whether it's advocating for Palestine at the moment, you know, mm. it's it's looking at power over systems, whether they're things that happen in public full view within political spheres, within institutional abuse, or whether it's in the private space as well, you know, in, in interrelation, interrelational spaces, because that's essentially where all our pain comes from, mm. is in that relational space. Um, and it's also where all our healing comes from. We can only heal relationally as well. So it's kind of like the micro and the macro of who I am. I've always known this about myself since I was such a young girl, like I really burned for social justice and being conditioned female as a young girl and the good girl conditioning and, you know, how that led me into a lot of performative roles. Yeah. It's kind of like there was a crack that that I fell through a couple of years ago that in a way was the most, it looked like the biggest failure in lots of ways, but it's been the most rich learning. Um, yeah, so I think the, the, when I was trying to figure out like, why does Sheila want me to come in today? Um, I think that's the the perspective I bring or that's that's the lens through which I look at the world. Okay, well, I'm going to jump in with why I <laughs> wanted to speak to you and why I am... Um, I feel very lucky that you're here. And now my concern is that I do you justice. As in by facilitating you, because I feel like we've had a lot of voice notes back and forth and I'm kind of getting goosebumps now as I'm talking, because when you speak, I think you are, there's a, there's a calmness and a groundedness to your voice. You're so (laughs) articulate. And I think you, you bring words to the now in a way that I want to, but I struggle to find the words. I struggle to find the words and how I feel. Um, And I think this conversation, this is the last one. This is the last conversation I'm having on the podcast for this year. You know, Christmas is around the corner. This is an important, this is an important, um, this is an important one for me. Let's, let's go to your visit to the West Bank, Mm. which happened when and what brought you there? Yeah. I got a phone call last December, actually, from a friend of a friend. I, I have a very good friend, Shiva Brock. She's a musician and singer and songwriter. And um, Anlo Carlon, who set up a gym, a community gym in a community centre in Bethlehem in the Ida refugee camp. And he did it, uh, established in 2020, fundraised for it, you know, set up this incredible gym. Um, for the people of the Ida refugee camp. And a lot of friends have gone over to volunteer. Um, Shiva went over a couple of years back um, and I was mentioned as someone who could potentially bring yoga mm. to the gym. And so Anla contacted me and I was like, me, go to Palestine to teach yoga? Why not? <laughs> mm. um, so I didn't go with any, I didn't go with any preconceived, well, actually unconscious preconceived ideas. I didn't go with any kind of preconceived um, pro-Palestinian feelings. Um, 
in, in if anything, I went with a kind of an apolitical lens because I was raised to be very apolitical. I didn't have strong feelings about politics or, you know, it wasn't really encouraged in, in our family growing up. My dad's from Clonus, from a border town. And, you know, yeah. I grew up in the 70s and 80s. So in a way, there was a sort of a distancing from everything that was about the Troubles or any kind of identifying with any sort of nationalist or Republican way of thinking. Mm. So in a way, I was like totally blank in, in lots of ways going there. And I was excited to go in a volunteering capacity. I had myself and Fergal had gone to Calcutta a couple of years previous to spend a month in Calcutta working as volunteers with the Hope Foundation. You know, I kind of saw it as just kind of building on that yeah. in a way. And my God, I, it took me a week after arriving in Bethlehem, in Ida, to, to make sense of the world that I was living in, because it's quite dystopian when, when you're in a place that is under occupation. Anla grew up in West Belfast. For him, he understands, you know, occupation and the, the scars of that. And, but like I went there and it just felt like, you know, there were watchtowers right beside this community centre, um, playground, you know, health facility that was been tear gassed every other day. And the people who lived in the refugee camp, this was life for them. Yeah. And I suppose I was thinking, flipping hell, like me coming over to teach yoga, <laughs> you know, in a place that's an active conflict zone. Yeah. With people who are living under oppression, like a, a, a full apartheid wall right beside the, the community centre, the Laji centre. Laji is, um, means refugee in Arabic. And I kind of felt like a bit of an imposter thinking, well, I've nothing to bring really because it's so big. You know, the, my understanding of it wasn't very deep. And within a week, I mean, I found myself kind of rationalising things like, like the snipers and the AI machine guns that were on the wall and the facial recognition cameras. And I was kind of like, ah, yeah, but obviously there's, there's a reason that it's there. You know, it took me almost a week to kind of see it for what it was mm. because I was hearing words like settlers, martyrs, apartheid state. And I was like, they're strong words. Like they're really politicized words. Yeah. And for me, you know, the, the eighties, nineties child who distanced myself from, from all of that on the island that I grew up on. Yeah. It was a real unveiling. Like it was. And as I started to get to know more of the people in the centre, I was welcomed into so many of the homes. I mean, I was fed every day. Um, as I started to get to know the people and they started to trust me. Such like the simplest of things like diaphragmatic breath. Just just landing into the breath, landing into the body. Mm. I could I could sense that as they trusted me more and more, that they were able to relax more and more into the into the sessions. Yeah. And it actually wasn't about being there to facilitate yoga. It was about being there to to show solidarity. Uh, like a lot of Palestinian, most Palestinian people who live outside of the the occupied territories of Palestine can't return. You know, the, there's no airport for them to fly into. They have to go through Israeli security. They have to go through to get into their own communities and their own land. They have to go to Jordan or, you know, fly out of another country. So I only see the relevance and the the gift that it was for me to be able to go there as a Westerner. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and I think to just to bring you back to Ida because it is such an incredible place. It's there's about six thousand people living there. It's right on the on the border of Bethlehem, which also mind absolutely blown by the fact that I was walking around the streets of Bethlehem. Yeah, it's not a place in Narnia. It's not, it's not just in songs that we sing at Christmas time. That's right. It's a real place. It's I went to the place. Church of the Nativity. You know, I was like, this is <laughs> my whole mind. I think I had such a heart activation while I was there that this place, this mythical place that I had sung about as a child in Nativity plays and I, had, you know, as a former music teacher in schools that I had done all the carols and sure. it's like, I'm here, I'm in this place and it's under occupation, mm. brutal occupation every day. The apartheid wall cuts down the main trading street in Bethlehem. You know, it it's it has choked off so much of the vitality and the the freedom of movement and of the people in the occupied West Bank. Mm. So yeah, Ida as a refugee camp was established in 1950. I think I'm not great with figures, so I I'm yeah, it was 1950. So 1948 was the Nekba, mm. which was the catastrophe. And anyone who's engaged in in this crash course in Palestinian history and occupation over the last 75 years will know that the Nekba was a moment in time that displaced 750,000 Palestinian people. And again, that was another thing for me that I couldn't understand, that these people were Palestinians living in Palestine, but refugees. Mm-hmm. So that was another cognitive origami that I had to do while I was there as well, you know? Yeah. Um, so 1948 happened, the establishment of the, the state of Israel happened. But in that, there's an incredible documentary called Creation and Catastrophe. Oh, I haven't seen that. Yeah. And at the time, the creation of a Jewish homeland for Jewish people who were seeking safety. Mm. And at the exact same time, a catastrophe happened for the native people of Palestine mm-hmm. um, who were whose land was taken, you know, so there's lots, I mean, we could do a whole podcast on that and I'm no expert on it. But as I learned this and then this is why these people are refugees, because from 1950, it started off as a tent village and bit by bit, the people who were displaced from their villages, 27 villages around the area of Bethlehem, Jerusalem. These people are from 27 villages and bit by bit, they started to build their homes. You know, the grandparents would live at the bottom the bottom floor, the next generation on the second floor, the next generation on the third floor. So you've got this very tightly packed, um, as you've seen, if if you've seen any of the, the videos from Gaza, yeah. refugee camps, you know, really densely populated areas, mm-hmm. families living on top of one another. Incredible community, incredible sense of community. Um, so I lived in Ida refugee camp. I felt so safe there. I felt so welcomed there. Um, but it took me a while to to figure out how these people could be refugees. I suppose what's going through my head is how are how are they? How are they? Was 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 there a sense of this is our life? You know, this is what we know as our normal. We accept this. Mm. Our we know this is wrong, um, but we just get on with it because we have no other choice. I suppose what's what was the um. What is the mindset? Palestinians are many people. <laughs> yeah. And they're, you know, they're not one type of person. Um, Palestinians are Christian, are mm-hmm. Muslim, um, are atheist, potentially, you know, 
lot of Palestinians who who may not practice any faith, but they're Palestinian. Um, the people that I met, the word resilience is used a lot. Um, I think existing under occupation is resistance. Existing at all with your language, with your faith, with your traditions, your culture, your music, your your dress. They have this beautiful embroidery, tatris. Um, so any kind of symbol of of existence is resistance. Mm-hmm. You know, so any indigenous people who have been occupied, who've been brutalized, who've been genocided, their very existence in their skin color and their customs and their traits and their folk traditions is a resistance. Mm. So there are people living that every day. Yeah. Um, th- there's an incredible, the Laji Centre is, is many things. It's got the gym, Akli Palestine, that was set up by Anla. Um, but it has a community health centre. It has a an environmental uh, unit. They've got the most amazing hydroponic garden at the rooftop of the Laji Centre. Like it's, it's stunning to see what they grow, all the vegetables, all the fruit in these little hydroponic pods. It's like an, an oasis in the desert. Like it's stunning. Um, they've got a music unit for the, the, the children who learn from, um, professional musicians who come from a conservatory in Bethlehem, um, and in other cities as well that come and teach them their folk music. Um, they've got a community health. I think I said that. Um, and I spoke to a visiting doctor and it was so interesting to, to hear him talk about the kind of the, the, the chronic load on people's systems, mm. the chronic load of stress, because there's no PTSD in in a place that is in continuous trauma cycle. Yeah. When you're being tear gassed every other day. Do, you don't have the opportunity to have that. No, to have the post. Yeah. Talking to him really opened my eyes to that, you know, hypertension, chronic pain, um, a lot of respiratory issues because tear gas is a, is a toxic gas. It's, it's, mm. it's actually illegal in warfare, I believe. And like literally I would walk down the street and I would pick up tear gas canisters that said Pennsylvania, USA, every single one of them, you know, uh, something combat systems, combined tactical systems, Jamestown, Pennsylvania, you know, and it was just incredible to see that. Um, Yeah. And, and to know that Ida is one of the most tear gas places on earth, Ida camp, 6,000 people living in this densely populated area. And it's used as a training ground for new um, soldiers from the Israeli uh, occupation forces. So I spoke to I spoke to friends of mine there and recently, you know, they said that there's up to 140 soldiers raiding the camp in daylight now. So they go in and they raid the camp. They used to do that at night while I was there. Um, but there's up to 140 soldiers raiding this refugee camp. And taking kids out of houses and, you know, so when you, when you think about the chronic load of that and living in that hyper vigilant, hyper tense state. Can't imagine. But there, but even within that, there's such resilience and, and beauty. And, and I think one of the most amazing things, Palestinians have one of the lowest illiteracy rates in the world and they've got per capita one of the highest PhD graduates. Numbers. I had heard that. That's phenomenal, isn't, isn't it? it? Yeah. It, like, I can't help but think how, how in, in, in the conditions in which they live. But it's amazing as you, it goes back to the resilience, I suppose, and mm. that 
that desire to thrive even in the most horrific of circumstances. And, and you know, this is from the perspective of, of pre, you know, October 7th. Yeah. And now, obviously, things are have accelerated mm. to uh, the most devastating degree. I think it's important as well, Sheila, because when before I went there, the Gaza Strip did not know where it was situated West Bank. These were just words. And uh, you did you did point it out, which I think is 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 reflective of a lot of people, including myself listening. I would have crudely been aware of the history, very crudely. I'm certainly no expert now, but I've certainly done a lot more mm. educating myself on the history since the 7th of October, because I'm trying to understand, you know, this because it's it's the insanity of the now that part of me goes, another way a second, there's some, there must be another part that I'm missing here mm-hmm. because, that you know, this this can't be happening. It's 2023 and you keep digging further and deeper and you, and, and the more you learn, the more dystopian it gets. Yeah. The darker it gets, the more upsetting it gets. So I can't imagine, um, you know, for for you as somebody who who went there and connected with the people, you have contact with with people over there. Yeah. How how are they How are they doing? It's a it's a crazy question. Yeah, and I I find it hard to ask them that as well because I remember one of the the earliest texts that I got from um, Mohammed Alaza. He's the director of the Laji Center, and I just you know I I I said I'm so sorry this is happening. My heart is breaking for you. You know what what can we do or what can be done and I remember he texted back and said the hardest part is watching the world against us it's like this it was when the US were sending the the naval ships and you know and it was very early on it was like it was an immediate defence step up yeah and I think it's important to to recognise as well that there are a lot of laws enshrined in, in UN constitution that protects the lands in the West Bank, that protects the refugees' right to return, um, that, that unfortunately Israel has been breaking international law for many, many years. And this isn't, I'm really conscious of how charged this issue is for people. And I know I'm not talking about an experience from, you know, I didn't go to, to Israel and hang out with Israelis and find out what their lives were like. I, that wasn't part of my trip. Mm. I'm aware of that. But I'm also aware that my balance was that I didn't understand anything about the narrative of Palestinians before I went there, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. My narrative was through Western media. So in a way, I feel like the scales have been balanced somewhat in, in my sense of the the situation. Um, But to see that that international law and humanitarian law has been broken for decades and... I think the worrying thing for all of us as global citizens is where are the goalposts moving to now in terms of the rules of war, in terms of humanitarian law, all of that, Mm. you know. So I think it is incumbent on people to to know about what's happening um, and to also to become aware of it, to to have an opinion around it, because it does affect everything. Like the UN was set up after the world wars so that it wouldn't happen again. Yeah. You know. And yet here we are. Yeah. So again, it was something that both of us mentioned to each other and how we were aware of this conversation being an open and robust one um, and one without as as much as we possibly can, without judgment or, or, or guilting anyone or shaming anyone into doing 
anything they don't want to do. But I do think the conversation around the speaking up or the silence around what is happening right now is an important one to have. Uh, and I really hope people, because there, there will be people who maybe see this conversation and go, no, I'm not listening to that. Mm. I, I don't want to know. And I'm hopeful that those who feel that way will step outside their own comfort zone and give it a give it a go, give it a listen. That we're not out to bash anyone or f- make anyone feel bad. But I think a lot of people feel that the silence from certain people, particularly those in positions of influence, yeah, can can feel like well, can feel different things to different people. I I I feel disappointment and I have to check myself for feeling that way. Mm. Um, and then I, I look at myself and I go, well, are you doing enough? <laughs> There's a constant having to check in with myself and my own thoughts and feelings on the now. Um, because whenever anything like this happens and in a different way through COVID, this kind of stuff happened where people had such different views on the the approach and 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 all that went with it and it did bring up a lot and there were a lot of there was a lot of conflict there were a lot of families torn apart and different different opinions and when it comes to something as divisive as as what's happening right now um you know people can feel can feel lots of different things but i think there's no doubt about it it has to be said and it is truthful and there's no one that can disagree with this innocent people men women and children are dying Mm. every single day. And it's absolutely wrong. What I'm trying to kind of get to is the conversation around visibility. Yeah. As regards the now and how important it is, as you just said there, that feeling that they feel like the the world is is staying quiet. Yeah. Well, you've mentioned a couple of things. So visibility and and the idea of not being the the judgment judgmental sort of persecutor. So I'm going to mention two women who you know because you've interviewed them recently, um, who are not only mentors of mine. I've trained with them both. I've worked with them both. They're also very good friends of mine. Uh, so Kate O'Dwyer, who's a visibility coach, and Kitty Maguire, who is a menstruality facilitator, mm-hmm. menstruality coach. Amazing. Um, and. Yeah, so around visibility, as Kate would say, when you step out onto the skinny branch, it's a terrifying place to be. Yeah. You know, and even coming into this podcast, I was like, I can feel it in my system. You know, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I say something that I haven't thought through or I haven't researched properly? And already halfway through our chat, I'm kind of going, have I said enough? Did I, was this right? Was that angle right? That's what we do. We're constantly checking ourselves and trying to make sure that we're safe. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. Like Safety, it's, yeah. It's, are we safe to say what we're saying? Mm. Is it safe to be visible around this? Is it, you know, and everything from every, from the tiniest cell in our body, we try and avoid pain. Mm. Literally, that is like, we will do anything. We'll adapt in any single way. We'll have nervous system responses that try to avoid pain. So we don't want to find ourselves in a position where we're cancelled or we're, you know, attacked or we're, we're saying the wrong thing. And I think as well as as women, the good girl conditioning is very strong. And it's, mm. you know, do I have a right to speak? Is this my place? Even when when this, you know, a lot of a lot of friends of mine were saying, like, you've been to Palestine, you can talk about this. But I still really did not want to centre myself in any way as being an expert. And I didn't want to centre myself as being, you know, you have to listen to me now because I've been there. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Because it's not my voice that matters. It's Palestinian voices that matter. Mm-hmm. It's the voices of the oppressed that matter. However, 
when that voice has been suppressed and monitored and 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 erased, it is incumbent on people who can speak. You know, I have friends living in Germany who aren't as free as we are to speak mm. publicly in their jobs. I get it. People have built up careers, some people online, some people not. They've invested massive money in training in a certain area. They've, you know, they've put in the hard graft and the thoughts of saying the wrong thing and losing 10,000 followers or losing potential customers. There's a very real fear in that for people, but also there's a fear that isn't about um, economical, you know, um, issues. It's around just saying the wrong thing and hurting people. But there's no nuance in genocide. And this has been, this has been named a genocide by, by all of the, the governing bodies that know what this is, the steps Mm -hmm. towards annihilating people. You know, this isn't us coming up with an idea that just because people are dying in another country in the Middle East, that it's genocide. It has been named this by people in the know, by human rights law. So where's the nuance in that? It's like there are no two sides to genocide. Yeah. It's the oppressor and the oppressed. So, Gabor Mate, incredible man. If mm. if you haven't heard of him, I know you have, Sheila. Yeah. But if people haven't heard of him, he is a Holocaust survivor. He was handed over as a baby in the Warsaw Ghetto to a relative or potentially, I don't know if it was even a relative, I think it was a neighbour. He had family members killed in, in the Holocaust. He grew with that generational trauma and that pain. He became a GP, he specialised in trauma, in addiction, in developmental trauma. He was a Zionist as a young person, Mm. as a young man. Um, And for him, the idea of safety for, for his people was the most important thing. And through his experience within the occupied territories of Palestine, he went to the West Bank and he said he cried every day for two weeks for what he saw for the idea of these people that he had been raised with, that they were the the enemy. And he speaks about disillusionment. And this was just so powerful when, when I heard this. He said that the times in my life when I've been disillusioned have been the most formative and powerful times of my life because I am no longer under an illusion of something. Mm. I have been like literally a veil lifted. The illusion of my superiority or the illusion of you know, even when we look at ourselves as Irish people, the the riots that happened, you know, yeah, we, yeah. we become disillusioned. We're like, well, what's what's real? What's safe? What we, you know, where do we stand on this? We look at racism, we look at classism, we look at all of these intersectional parts of what it means to be human. And we have to constantly be disillusioned. Mm. And it's fucking uncomfortable. Yeah. Because nobody wants to feel pain. Because we've worked hard enough to get safe, to get well, to heal our, our pain, our traumas, our individual traumas, you know, mm-hmm. you know, to get a mortgage, to get a house, to have kids or not, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. And, and the pain of that, that people have to go through. And it's like, oh, can I not just drop the martyr sword now? Can I not just live a pain-free life? And unfortunately, I think that's the fork in the road that a lot of people come to. And you either choose to stay socially engaged and feel the pain. Mm. It's so, it's not convenient. It's not, it's not nice. It's not, it disrupts everything when we have to be disillusioned under the veil of our safety or our superiority. 
I don't know what the question was or how we've got here, but I'm glad we're at Gabor Mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he said another thing about speaking your truth. Actually, yeah, this is exactly what we were talking about, visibility. That if you express your truth, there's going to be pain. Mm-hmm. Because if you if you express what you really feel and who you really are, like, is it safe for me to show up completely as who I am? Or do I have to adapt myself to be palatable to you or this situation or this workplace or whatever? If you speak your truth, there is going to be pain because people will disagree with you. If you don't speak your truth, if you suppress your truth. So he says, if you express your truth, there's pain. If you suppress your truth, there's pain. Yeah. Because you have to live with what your heart knows to be right and true and moral, this moral compass. And for whatever reason, I think sometimes the great example for me is, to use a big term, patriarchal women. Um, I'm a recovering, recovering patriarchal woman um, where I knew that by staying close to the establishment and staying close to the status quo, I would also be safe. Yeah, yeah. And that's the good girl training too. Yeah. So I've started stepping out of that and onto the very, very skinny, yeah. skinny branch. <laughs> Thank you, Kate. <laughs> the very fucking skinny branch. And yeah. I've been shut down and I've been shamed and I have been, I've had to lose very, very, very close relationships as a result of speaking my truth. Mm. And the pain of that. But I, I, like, either way, there's a cost. There's a cost to solidarity. It's, it costs you something. To use your voice. And truthfully, Sheila, as someone who used to have, you know, a broadcasting career, as someone who used to be on stage, like for me, profile was such a prison. I realise that now. And Mm. I have nothing to lose. I've lost so much in standing for and in what I believe to be true that I could say anything to you right now. And I genuinely... It wouldn't, it wouldn't threaten the amazing life and love and safety and it wouldn't threaten what I have to speak my truth. And I don't, yeah, and I don't think everyone has that. No. I'm really lucky that I have gotten to that place. Lucky, but you also had to dig deep and get into the sludge. Mm-hmm. of everything, didn't you? To yeah. do the work. Um, and it, it's something that I know you, you've spoken about. And it's, it's important to to talk about the power of our shadow and how yeah. important it is that we, instead of pushing it away, are pretending it's not there and it's all love and light and everything's great all the time, that actually to really understand who we are, we have to accept that mm. we are both parts, light and dark. Yeah. And we're in the dark half of the year. We're in winter. We're coming up to winter solstice, you know, where yeah. the light is lowest, where, you know, basically, you know, this shard of light that comes through the passage tomb in Newgrange is, is this the birth of, of the light part of the year. But we are deeply in the shadow part of the year. And I think when you look at Celtic wisdom, you can't have summer solstice without the winter solstice. You can't have mm. the light without the dark. And And when we speak about like the shadowy parts of human existence, like we're seeing it come out. It's like a poultice has been put on the world and it's like everything is just being uncovered. So I understand the need to kind of go, that's too much. It's too much and it's too dark. And we just want to, we just want to keep things 
cozy and yeah. it's Christmas time and I get it. Um, Marion Woodman, the she's a Canadian mythopoetic writer. She speaks about ritual containers that we need in life. And I want to thank um, an amazing um, therapist, Fiona Rooney, who spoke to me about this recently. And it was so helpful because she she spoke about the fact that when everything is too big and overwhelming, it is literally like our systems can't take climate collapse, social order, like dysfunction and dystopia, um, everything to do with the cost of living, you know, what, how children, uh, the struggles that our children are are going through in terms of technology and like it's, it feels like it is all so much. And I understand why people dissociate and they go into freeze or they go into numb out mode or we start buying loads of stuff or we, you know, we go to um, whatever it is, whatever will we'll kind of numb that pain. Yeah. Um, and these ideas of, of ritual containers that hold us and those ritual containers are conversations one to one. They're places where we can meet and 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 discuss things that are hard. There, it's community. It's um, I mean, our Irish people know how to do ritual. We know how to do it really well. And I think at this time of year as well, that that Christmas and this midwinter gathering can be this ritual container. I think we we need to find joy in it as much as we need to sit in the in the dark of it because, yeah. like grief, <sighs> grief is love. And, and it's something I've been really investigating and, you know, we push away grief so quickly because it's, um, we watch this collective grief. People are grieving for people they don't even know. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're resonating, because we're human, because this is how we're built. This is how we're hardwired to have mirror neurons that when we see something, like we might flick past a story on Instagram, but our body has registered that. There's grief in that. And again, I'm borrowing from people I've spoken to or things I've seen on online that grief is love and grief is love with nowhere to go. So if we have nowhere to put that grief, it becomes overwhelming in our systems. And it's like, fucking want to get rid of this. I don't want to feel this way. I want to feel happy. I want to feel hope. I don't want to feel despair. But unless we sit with the shadow of what this is asking us to, to witness, because witnessing counteracts erasure. Hmm. If we see something, it's registered with us, you know. And the power of being a witness to this, even if we feel like we can't do enough. That is it for a lot of people. It's the helplessness we feel. Hmm. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Let's talk about something that you mentioned and and I, I've seen, we've both seen a lot of it and it is this, particularly in the communities in which we, I suppose, have interacted with because, um, you know, I, I've trained in yoga, you've trained in yoga. There is this, this, this kind of a spiritual bypassing that has been happening um, that I feel a lot of different things about. Some things I would probably not say for fear of wanting to hurt anyone or judge anyone, but uh, I, I do find it um, uncomfortable, mm. the silence from a lot of people. Yeah. And I'm going to bring Kitty back in because it was Kitty Maguire who sent me, um, she, she held a, a brilliant space around this where if we're in persecutor mode, Mm. And if we're wagging our finger, even if it's just like mentally kind of going, mm, why hasn't that person this, that and the other, that we we can flip out of persecutor mode and go into challenger mode. It's it's an awful lot more positive. And it's kind of like, how do we bring people in? How do we say like, can can we have a conversation about this and how you feel about it so we can, you know. Yeah, rather than judging them. For rather than judging or calling people out because nobody ever changes a habit through being shamed. No. Ever. Like it just... It, it it alienates you more and it actually kind of, not kind of, it does. It adds to the polarity and the polarisation of all of this. If people are like being pushed to one camp or one side, whereas what we want to try and do, hopefully through conversations, through awareness raising, through things like um, Irish Artists for Palestine, which I've been involved in, you know, that's a ritual container. It's a place to put the grief yeah. in a really proactive way. Mm. So... Yeah, to speak to the spiritual, so industry. And the word industry is the important thing there. Because mm-hmm. spiritual community is a very different thing. Yeah. Wellness community is a very different thing to wellness industry. Yes. Yeah. So if we if we strip it back down to, to the core of what that is, that's that is a capitalist model. Like it's an industry. And for a lot of people, I think I spoke to it already, um, that idea of losing followers, potentially harming your your income. Um, those things can be very real concerns for, for not taking a side. You said something brilliant um, that really, you said many different things <laughs> that stayed with me. But when you said, and I'm pretty sure your words were, for me, it's not about love and light. For me, it's love and justice all the way. Yeah. And when you said that, I was, that, it just landed with me in such a big way. Mm. Love and light <laughs> is about transcending the human experience through prayerful, ritual, meditative ways. And I suppose my belief is that we are spiritual beings having a human experience. So in a humanitarian crisis or global crisis, 
we have to act as humans first with a spiritual element that, that we carry with us and how we make sense of the world and how we make sense of suffering. But ultimately, we are here having a human experience. So we're responding in human ways. And I think if the goal of love and light is peace, both personal and collective, and if we look at meditation or thoughts and prayers, like the, the intention of thoughts and prayers is peace of mind and freedom from suffering. If we look at it through the lens of embodiment practices, the aim of all sorts of somatic regulation is to find safety in our bodies. So if peace is the ultimate goal, both individual and collective, in all of these spiritual or meditative or embodiment practices, then we have to look at the fact that there is no peace without justice. Mm. So love and justice for me is a, is a more human framework yeah. than love and light a human experience framework than love and light because love and light is transcending the human experience, the, the embodied, somatic, everyday, primordial human experience. And again, it's bringing back in what you've already spoken about, which is that we are whole beings. We're not, we're, we're a combination of our light and our shadow. Mm. That's what makes us real mm. and here. And we're flawed. None of us are perfect and it's it's unattainable to be that way. And actually, the more we embrace that we won't always have it right and there's always space to learn and to educate and to expand our knowledge and our compassion. Because, you know, we're we're here and I'm we, like we came and we, we saw each other and we gave each other a big hug and mm -hmm. we didn't say anything initially because the energy of the now is 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 so full on. We're so aware of our flaws and our ability to not know. Absolutely. And and also to to be in the discomfort of conversations that are so polarized. So polarized. And also to 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 not get bamboozled by that or overwhelmed by that and then just go into complete collapse and mm. freeze because that is not helpful. No. For anybody. No. Um and in the context of the Palestinian experience of this moment, what they are asking us to do, the free people of the world, the, the people who are engaged, the people who have a voice, is to, to speak up on their behalf. Yeah. Um, and going back to the idea that there is no peace without justice, like there is no justice under colonial oppressive systems. It's in intrinsically built on a superior and an inferior. Mm -hmm. And that's not justice. That's not human rights. And like those of us who benefit from these systems of privilege, I know I do. Yeah, because, of course, me too. You know, w w unless we're aware of these systems that we, we benefit from and the privilege that we have from them, like we either sit prayerfully in this privilege and call it love and light or we act from an informed and an embodied place to do everything we can to call for justice. Because ultimately, I saw an amazing uh, piece of writing by Joel Leon. He's a, an American writer. And it's, I think it's just so appropriate. Some things can't be prayed away. They need to be voted away. They need to be boycotted away. They need to be rioted away. And we need to pray and act for justice and liberation as much as we pray for peace or as much as we pray and hope that peace will come about. It, 
it won't come about through prayer alone. Yeah. And and that filters into all areas of life mm. and so many situations where we've had people, it's this, it's the, the classic, you know, the good people who just said nothing, who mm. did nothing, who stood by, idly by. And we are at that point in our history where this is when it matters. Yeah. This is when it matters. Even if we feel utterly helpless, which is an often a feeling I'm struggling with. Yeah. You know, how can little old me over here, you know, with all of the luxuries I have in my life, how can I make a difference? But we know that there are plenty of ways that we can use our, our voices, you know. Yeah, and, and something that's very present for me as well in I know I spoke about like being a child of the the 80s and 90s and being really distanced from the idea of any sort of nationalist or republican struggle for liberation and how that memory even if it was a generational thing or a kind of a cellular thing um was was ignited for me in seeing a place that was so explicitly under colonial apartheid oppression mm. um and like we have to acknowledge that we live in a sovereign republic because a mere 100 years ago yeah. there was a violent uprising and in the eyes of the colonial oppressive militant rule here the people who who gave their lives who martyred their lives for that cause were seen as terrorists yes you know and uh, it's in such recent history absolutely it is you know if we if we yeah. look at the 100 years of irish sovereignty and we look at the 75 years of oppression of the Palestinians mm. we're inextricably linked mm-hmm. to understand what it takes to to create freedom and liberation and and the long road to that i mean in our in our recent history how that peace process was brought about yeah um yeah so i think it's important to acknowledge that too as irish people a lot of people wonder you know the, the acting part, what what can we do? And again, I feel like things have ramped up, certainly mm. for myself, even in terms of messaging that I'm getting, um, direct messages that are being sent. Um, and there are, diff- there are different types of messages and people are entitled to send whatever messages they want. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm big, bold enough and been around long enough to deal with trolling. You know, I'm well used to it. But... Um, it can feel like you're screaming into the void a little bit unless you find your community, unless you find people who are on a similar path who are doing their bit also. Because there are times when, depending on what accounts you follow on social media, it can be like the world is continuing and there's nothing happening at the moment. There's no, there's no, there's, there's no carry on in Gaza and there actually there's no genocide happening in any part of the world. And if you read down through the, the headlines in the Irish Times or, you know, it's like the 20th news item, mm. you know. So for, for those of us who are engaged in it and aware of it, it can feel quite, it's like, it's almost like an exercise in global gaslighting. Yeah. Like anyone who's been under any sort of power over system, mm. be it in a, a relationship, in a workplace, whatever, generationally, collectively, when we see this play out, when we see on the world stage, the bully is not only endorsed, it's resourced, it's protected. Yeah. And you're watching this level of gaslighting. People, some, some people call it propaganda, but that's essentially what it is. Mm. That we're, we're seeing things with our own eyes on our mobile phones, you know, and that then has been discredited. It's just another form of erasure of narrative of truth. 
mm-hmm. and of existence of the Palestinian experience and of Palestinian people. Let's talk about the recent vote and mm. the United States and the Biden administration. And again, you know, back to a word I think you used earlier on in the conversation was unveiling, yeah. you know, and it feels like there is that sense of, you know, the blindfold has been taken off and people are seeing things maybe in a way that they didn't see before, they weren't aware of before. But again, um, a hugely disappointing moment. Uh, unfortunately, not a surprising one. Let's talk about it. Well, it's... I mean, the level of disbelief when you when you see global leaders speak about democracy and human rights. I mean, the 75th anniversary of the Declaration of Human Rights happened. I, I'm not sure when. Time is a blur. Um, and, it's, and it's crazy to look at the parallels of 75 years of occupation mm. of Palestinians as well. You know, and... and when we see politicians speak in terms of human rights, diplomacy, democracy, all of these words lose all meaning when they constantly veto and obstruct any road to peace. Mm-hmm. When there's something, there's something playing out that's, I mean, they say it's a religious war. It's a geopolitical war. It's a... It's the US call, you know, the state of Israel a domestic issue because they see the presence of Israel within the Middle East as so beneficial Mm. for them in terms of having the only democracy in the Middle East is what they call it as a very kind of political tool to safeguard their interests, you know, and there's there's things there are things bigger than all of us playing out in terms of trade routes resources. Um, we we are mere pawns in a chess game. Mm-hmm. And that is the hardest thing to see when you when you see these these calls for humanitarian justice being vetoed by the US and the UK. Mm-hmm. And it can make us feel like whatever we do is screaming into the void. But I heard a figure recently, I think there's 8.1 billion people global population, we reach a tipping point when 3.7% of that 8.1 billion people get behind a cause. It's not that big a percentage, 3.7%. I think it's somewhere in the region of 299 million, maybe say, let's round it off, 300 million. Yeah. Because Mm. the top 4% in the world who control all the money, all Mm. the resources, you know, Mm. the big boys club. Yeah. The top 4%, if we can get another 4%, 3.7 to 4%. On the other side of it. Yeah, there is a tipping point. There is, there is a, that's a global movement. And I think the thing is we're, we're getting there. Mm. And that's why it's getting dirtier and it's getting darker. Yeah. And the gaslighting is getting more entrenched and. And the impact on, on us as individuals is getting heavier Mm. and harder to probably almost detox from is probably not the right term, but to be able to function in our own lives as well as be engaged. Mm. Um, it's a it's a bit of a balancing act. The one that currently, right now, just before we met, I was struggling with myself because I actually came into the room and I was kind of shaky mm. because of conversations I'm having in my own life with people that I really care about. Um, and 
it's 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 very challenging. Yeah. It's very challenging. Um but it won't stop me from wanting to understand people a bit more and to try and expand my own understanding of it. Because if anything can help me under- to make sense of the madness of the now, I'll, I'll welcome that information. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I actually, please help me understand this craziness. Challenge me. Come make on. Make me learn more. Please. Yeah. yeah. Please give it to me because that's the, that's the other battle I think that's happening for a lot of us is it feels like I've just taken a whole heap of crazy pills. <laughs> oh, sorry now, what? You're not alone. Yeah. Sheila. So how, yeah. how are you doing yourself? Um, in uh, my, my trite response to, to people when they ask is in some ways I've never been better and in some ways I've never been worse. Mm. Um, something that Kate O'Dwyer um, shared recently and it's from an Iranian British activist, um, Raika, I can send you the link if, if you want to share it with your yeah, listeners. Do, um is grieve, integrate, act, rest. And I know we talk, like we, we, we look at self-care as being really important, but self-care can be very isolating and individual and kind of hyper-individualistic. Mm-hmm. But we, we, you use the word detox and almost like this metabolizing of what we're seeing, the horror that we are being asked to witness. Yeah. And rather than go into collapse or despair or freeze, we feel the grief of it. We feel the rage of it. Mm. We integrate that. Like it's like metabolizing our food. We need to get rid of some of the parts of it that that would maybe make our systems shut down and make us disconnect or dissociate or, or numb out. So we integrate that and then we act, whatever that looks like. Mm. For me, I've I've started to use my voice more. I've started to speak up more on social media. Does that matter? Yes, it does matter because somehow this has become part of our our life and this is how we share information and this is how we mobilise and this is how we touch hearts and minds and, you know, welcoming conversation. We act, we protest, we, you know, we go to some of the cultural gatherings that are happening. Um, and then and then there is a part of it that has to be about rest and resourcing ourselves as well. Because you're no good to anyone if you can't function. Yeah. So well. that for me is a really helpful. That is very helpful. Grieve. And I would like to share that. Integrate. Act. Rest. And that is almost like a repeat cycle because our bodies can't deal with the amount of overwhelm when we look at all of the things we've been asked to. We are being asked to stay awake to. Because it's that thing of dissociate, numb out, yeah. deny, mm. um, maybe just bypass because it's easier and it's it saves us from having to be in the pain of it. But like our capacity grows, our capacity both in terms of our nervous system and in terms of our heart, our humanity. Yeah. You know, you're having a human response by feeling deep pain for people we don't know. That's right. So it's a sign of your humanity. It's a sign of your working heart. Well done. Mm -hmm. You're still human. Having a human experience. And I think going back to that idea of transcending a human experience that's fine if you're a monk living in a cave, but we're not. We're, we're global citizens. Mm. And that getting upset um, and that all the, the feelings that come with that. And also those heated debates that you have with people you love. That's all part of it too. Yeah. As as hard as it is, and it is hard for me at the moment, I'd rather have that than 
brush it under the carpet and pretend everything is grand. And, you know, it's the elephant in the room saying, hey, I'm over here. I'm just going to ignore you. I'm just not going to go there. I think it's, it's healthier. But again, is that back to the, your response? Because I'm, you know, I'm a fighter. I'm a fighter. <laughs> I'm too. a fighter. <laughs> yeah, Come yeah. on. You know, and I don't want to, like, I'm also a lover. I'm also a lover. Uh, I'm more of a lover than a fighter. But I think there are times when love is actually um, expressed through debate. Mm. Well, it's amazing. Uh, was it Julia Cameron, the artist's way? Oh, yeah. She said that anger is a map to where your boundaries have been crossed. Mm. So if 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 we're responding with anger, it's a really like anger is such a healthy emotion. Yeah. Um, healthy anger, righteous anger, embodied anger. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've been told that no good thing comes from anger, or it's it's not it does a woman doesn't wear anger well, all this kind of crack. Yeah. But like, anger is fire, and fire is the element of metabolizing and changing and alchemizing. Everything gets melted down and reformed through mm. fire. Um, and the divine feminine, this this idea of of celebrating um, feminine energy, you know, it's not it's not a, a very genteel nature. It's a it's a fiery nature. Well, it's a dark nature. Like the the feminine part of the year in terms of the Celtic calendar is the dark part of the year. Mm. It's the dark feminine, like the, the, the yin and the yang, the kalyuk, absolutely. The hag of winter, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, the crone, the elder. Yeah, the, the wise one. The wise one. And she's not always the most palatable. Mm. She has, she has let herself go, as they say. Yeah, yeah, I can't yeah. wait <laughs> to let myself go. She's the, the Helen Mirren of it. I wish I said fuck off more often. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. So it's, that dark that. feminine. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And, you know, a lot of us, it hasn't happened to me yet, actually, but on social media, I'm seeing a lot of accounts saying my story was was taken down. I've been I've been, you know, warned that if I continue sharing the types mm. of content that I'm sharing, my my account is going to be closed. Mm. Yes, touch wood and all that hasn't happened to me. But um, in terms of using social media correctly, um, it might not be any harm to talk about, you know, ways of doing that because it doesn't like cer- certain words. No. It doesn't like you talking about things. And I know because I have a. I mean, it depends on what accounts you look at, but I have a sub- substantial amount of people who, air quotes, follow me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I know instinctively that if I'm to talk about a cup of tea I'm having or what's happening in Gaza, the views will be triple the, the conversation I'm having about the nice cup of tea I'm having versus what's actually happening at the moment at the other side of the world. I'm no tech expert. However, like I've never shared as much on social media as I have done in the last couple of months. Um... And I, I think I've been somewhat shadow banned. I can't follow people and, you know, whatever. And I don't tend to do the putting in different letters to substitute for, you know, to try and make words not look like what they are. I started doing that now. But I mean, they say every third story should be like something pretty for the algorithm. Right. You know, try not to write words like genocide, Palestine, Israel. Um, to avoid the truth. Basically. Yeah. For mm. those who are listening, who are maybe concerned about the amount they're viewing and how it's maybe having an impact on them. Now, it hasn't happened to me yet and I hope it doesn't happen. But the concern is the longer this continues and the more that we expose ourselves to, the more likely that perhaps desensitization might creep in and might become something that, OK, I've seen so many of similar imagery that now it's not having that same impact that it had on me before. 
I hope that doesn't happen, but is it happening? Is it a concern? I think we have a, a an inbuilt body intelligence to keep growing our capacity to feel. I think when we feel desensitized to something, maybe it's time to step away. Yeah. And and look out the window. Mm. Um But there is there is an intelligence in the body that allows us to to go back to that word to metabolize it to to process it to make sense of it to integrate it it forever changes you I I feel completely changed from the person I was before I went to Palestine and in the last two months there's something around the grief that we're feeling being love the anger that we're feeling is love so. Not to be afraid of the fact that sometimes we feel like it's too much for us to to hold. That it's yeah. At the core of it, it's there is a love of humanity, a love of the other. Um, for a lot of parents as well, I know I've heard people say, I can't look at it. I've got children. I can't look at images of children being killed it's, like this. It is extremely hard. I mean, I think whether you have kids or not, I think it's just, it's horrific. And, but I think, um, I, th- I suppose, yeah, if you've had the experience of, um, of bringing a human to the world, it's just, it goes against everything. Like, you know. And this is the bottom line, Sheila. You, you have said it, that our innocent people are being killed. We can't, we can't be okay with systems that green light war without looking at the other alternatives. We can't live in a world no. that, that continues to perpetuate this idea of hunting the, the baddie. Yeah. And people are just collateral damage, you know? Yeah, it's like that image that was doing the rounds. I don't know how to pronounce his name. I wish I did actually. And I'm going to, I'm going to learn how to pronounce his name. But I think the majority of us, again, who are following know of the grandfather who was mm, holding Reen. Reen. Yeah. And the soul of my soul. Mm. He broke me. Yeah. And again, it's back to that. We've been, we've been brainwashed for years to fear that bearded man with the turban with the turban with the dark skin you know and um, it's so messed up mm. so warped um, and seeing the the subsequent footage of him helping the way he's helping people and the gentleness of him and despite the extreme pain he's experiencing and his capacity to love is phenomenal it's um, it's um it's certainly teaching me a lot. Mm. It's teaching me a lot. And again, I suppose the fact that Christmas is around the corner, you know, it's the irony is not lost on us. You know, you were there. You were. This has been uh, a hugely impactful year for you. You've spoken about your visit um, earlier this year and the past two months, the impact it's had on you. But let's also talk about the biggest celebration mm. of the entire year that is celebrated globally and where that originates. Yeah. It's such a conflict for people now. 
Yeah. You know, and the, the feelings of guilt, of abundance, yeah. of consumerism, mm. of comfort mm. and joy. Yeah. Um, acknowledging that the Christian community in Bethlehem and all throughout the occupied West Bank and Gaza, Christian communities have called off any superfluous celebration of Christmas. There's no decorations. You know, the crib in, I think it's in the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, is rubble on the ground with little baby Jesus figure in the middle of the rubble and all of the the donkeys, the, yeah. the sheep, the wise men, Mary and Joseph looking in from the from the the fringes of this mound of rubble and and yet we do have to have this midwinter gathering of families of spiritual communities in churches and maybe in like to go back to that grieve integrate act and rest maybe when we sit at our dinner tables for Christmas, that this is part of how it changes us, how it has forever mm. changed our perspective around this place that we celebrate, this prophet that we celebrate, the Holy Land, all of the holy books that have come from it, that it is not a mythical place. It is, as I said before, it is a, a place and a people under brutal occupation. And that that is in some way going to change or influence or infuse into our humanity, our spirituality, our Christianity, in whatever way that looks. And if people can hold that while they acknowledge Christmas and celebrate Christmas, that that is in some way adding towards that 3.7% that yeah. I mentioned, yeah. you know? Yeah. And thank you for your tears because it's they're so welcome because sometimes I wonder why am I not crying more and then something one thing will happen and it'll just all flood No I get you I get you and today I suppose you know prior to this conversation I've had conversations that were very charged so that's adding Mm. to my emotion I suppose right now and again like another day we might sit here and talk and I might not cry and you might cry so that's just the way that's how it goes isn't it Yeah you know, um, but I said it to you before, I think, and again, this is back to, you know, why, why do I do what I do? This, the name of this podcast is ready to be real. It doesn't get more real than what's currently happening. And if we can't have open, robust conversation and fair enough, you know, people might listen to this conversation and say, okay, well, that's one perspective. You know, perhaps it's, you know, you, you should have had somebody else involved in the conversation to to um, balance it, to or, balance yeah. it somewhat, and you know, is that a valid point? Perhaps it is. Perhaps well, it is. Well, I'm not here as a political expert. Exactly. I'm here, literally speaking, from an the experience heart. I had in the last. That's right. Ten months. Yeah. yeah, but also what you said isn't. Um, it's not like it's it's make believe or you're making it up. Mm. You're stating fact about what Palestinians have endured yeah. living under occupation. It's that is that's not make believe. No, and I would love to give you a list of resources that have really helped me, even, you know, short movies that are on YouTube. 
Please do. I think the more information we can share, the better. And for me as well. I mean, I'll gain from that. So thank you. Uh, We'll add all of them into the show notes. Thank you. Thanks for making time. I know this this conversation has been in, in, in two parts and I'm so glad that we actually came back in to to continue it because it's not the end of the conversation. We could sit down next week and no doubt have a different one again. Um, and I know we've already spoken about a totally different conversation in the future. So we'll we'll uh, we'll revisit that as well. But I'm a cr- I really am very grateful to you for giving your time to all of us. I I think you'll leave people with a better sense of maybe making sense of it a bit more, understanding it a bit more. Um, perhaps for those who found the listen challenging, that it might um, encourage them to go in the resources that you've shared, maybe challenge themselves a bit more because it's important that we challenge ourselves and that we don't all take what we're given as we should. It's important to question and mm. people are very discerning, but it's really important to question things. Your body is always communicating as to, does this feel right? Am I seeing what I want to see here? The full picture. Um, because back to the madness thing, it is, I often, it is that thing of the feeling crazy. What am I missing here? Because this is not adding up. So the more we can inform and educate ourselves, the better, Mm. the better we can handle this time. And not everyone's going to engage or act the way that I do or the way that you do. And it's, it's truly up to each and every one of us to find our role and to find our voice in that and use it. And find our community. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that is important because certain friendships that we have may feel quite strained and different during this time and others that might be blossoming due to this Mm. strange time that we're in. Cuiva Butterly, the amazing uh, humanitarian activist, she speaks about lighthouses. Find the lighthouses. Because if we keep constantly putting our energy towards trying to convince people of what we know to be true. Yeah. And the, the energy that that takes to fight against that, wouldn't that energy be better placed and joining together with the lighthouses of people in our lives, you know, and that's where collective action comes in. That's Mm. where we, we mobilize and that's where we start to really lead from our hearts in real justice driven ways, Mm. rather than trying to stay in the weeds and fight the, you know, the polarity of it. It's like, do we agree on one thing that everybody deserves equality, human rights, freedom, liberation? If that's important to me, and that's important to you. Mm. If we find two more people, 20 more people, yeah. 200 more people, then we don't feel as isolated, alone, helpless or overwhelmed. Mm. That's where collective justice driven action is. And there's nothing about that that should be controversial for anybody. Amazing. Thank you, Ruth. Thanks, Sheila. This conversation was one of the most important that I've ever had on the podcast. And I'm going to ask you to please share it with your friends and your family on your social media accounts and with anyone you think needs to hear it. Ruth has also provided plenty of resources for us in the show notes. So please take a moment to look at them as well. And I just want to say thank you so much for listening and supporting the podcast the whole year through. I really do appreciate it. Grow more. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.